Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project Podcast Edition. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we feature Patrick Radden Keefe, who was part of the current 2022-2023 season of Portland Arts and Lectures. He joined us live in person at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in downtown Portland on Wednesday, February 22nd. Keefe is the author of five books of nonfiction, most recently Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Rebels, and Crooks, a collection of essays from his work as a staff writer at The New Yorker magazine. He's also the author of Say Nothing, a true story of murder and mystery in Northern Ireland, as well as Empire of Pain, the secret history of the Sackler dynasty. In his talk, Keefe describes the inspiration and investigation behind his work, which is a genre that his New Yorker editor has termed investigative melodrama. Keith talks about how he's drawn in by fascinating real-life characters like Arthur Sackler of Empire of Pain and Dolores Price of Say Nothing. These characters are a way to explore, as he says, the arbitrary lines we draw between what's legal and illegal, what society sanctions and celebrates, and what it condemns and punishes. In this very special extended edition podcast episode, we are including the full onstage introduction as well as the full audience Q&A. This is because many of our Portland Arts and Lectures subscribers actually were not able to make it to the concert hall on February 22nd due to extraordinary weather. Portland experienced an unexpected, historic, record-setting snowstorm, which blew in the evening of the event. You'll hear both Andrew and Patrick reference the weather and the smaller, intimate crowd. And as a special treat for podcast listeners, we are also including the opening reading from Oregon Literary Fellowship recipient Stephen Nance. Stephen actually also could not make it to the concert hall due to the weather, but they sent us a recording of a selection from their young adult novel in progress, A Bird in the Heart, which is set in eastern Oregon. To kick us off, here's Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts, with his introduction for Patrick Radinke. Oh my God. You are the most hardcore fans of all time, I think. Yeah, that's so funny. Uh, good evening. Welcome to, or I'm Andrew Proctor, Director of Literary Arts. Welcome to Port Arts and Lectures, the downtown residence version. Welcome to the fourth night of the 2022-23 season of Port Arts and Lectures, an evening with Patrick Radden Keefe. Um, thank you for being here. I want to thank the Schnitzer staff. We're open. And they're here. And that's really, I want to thank the literary arts staff. They're here. So, and I'm delighted that you are here. We had planned to have an opening reader tonight, but they are stuck in snow. My name is Stephen Nance. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm going to be reading from my young adult novel, A Bird in the Heart. I'm more of a lark than an owl. Not the best bird to be when you have a two-hour walk ahead of you and no certainty of a safe place to sleep. 
I waved goodbye to the friendly but woefully misinformed van-dwelling strangers who had offered to carry me 300 miles to the high desert of eastern Oregon. It had taken several hours lurking around the gas station for anyone to approach me because I wasn't holding a sign or anything. Eventually, the gas station attendant asked me why I was loitering, and when I explained that I was trying to hitchhike, he called some friends who happened to be heading in the direction I needed to go. The rattle of their rickety death trap faded into the distance and was replaced by a more invigorating sound. Chicago! Chicago! The iconic call of the California quail! I found the quail right as he ducked into a big sagebrush clump. Even that brief sighting pumped me up to the point where I could begin the long walk toward my destination, the Tulare Living Learning Center. At such a late hour, 8.30 p.m., I assumed there would be no chance of doing any birding, but the quail ended up being the least of my thrills, if you can believe it. Night fell quickly as I trekked down Sodhouse Lane, and along the way, I saw two great horned owls and my first ever barn owl. All three were rather imposing individuals, but the barn owl in particular terrified me. When I spotted them, they looked totally normal. Then we made eye contact, or I think we did, and the owl lengthened their body and started bobbing and weaving their head around in a defense display. Then... They crossed the road with a ghostly swoop right in front of me, and I almost screamed. Fortunately, I didn't, because it would have broken the most beautiful silence I'd ever heard. It was a welcome change after the interminable hours of flat-earth nonsense from the hashtag vanlife folks. Though the seemingly infinite acres of sagebrush sprawling out on every side of me almost had me second-guessing my dismissal of their crackpot theories. Keyword, almost. I was so busy scouring the utility poles for owls and inhaling the strange aroma of juniper that I didn't pay much attention to the night sky until I reached the ice rink pond. Glowing on the water's surface, the full moon's reflection caught my eye and my head tilted back reverently. My mouth hung open in awe, swallowing all that starlight. Since 1987, Literary Arts has honored over 700 Oregon writers and publishers and distributed more than one million in fellowships and award money through the Oregon Book Awards and Fellowships Program. This work is funded in part by the Brian Booth Writers Fund. So we announced already the Oregon Book Award finalists and fellowship recipients, and I invite you to join us on April 2nd at Portland Center Stage at the Armory for the 2023 Oregon Book Awards ceremony hosted by uh, Luke Burbank. Um, we'll announce the winners then, so join us. And I do want to thank Patrick for taking the time out of his busy schedule. He met with local writers today um, and did a craft talk with them. He also was at Lincoln High School this afternoon. Um, and he's obviously a person in great demand um, and has a lot to do. So just if you give him a round of applause for the time he spent in our community. Uh, and depending on his flight tomorrow, he might spend more time in our community. Um, Patrick Radden Keefe is the author of five works of nonfiction, including the New York Times bestsellers, Say Nothing, A True Story of Murder and Mystery in Northern Ireland, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, and most recently, Rogues, True Stories of Grifters, Killers, Rebels, and Crooks, which is a collection of the most, his most celebrated journalism from the New Yorker magazine, where he's been a contributor 
and staff writer since 2006. He has been the recipient of some of the most significant prizes in his profession, including a National Magazine Award, the Orwell Prize for Political Writing, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Whether he is writing about uh, the ringleader of a human smuggling operation in Chinatown, a pharmaceutical giant with a love for art, or a celebrity chef, Keith's characters are always fully realized and completely fascinating. NPR called Rogues, quote, a wonderful book, not only because Keith's prose is masterful, but because he has a preternatural gift for rendering people. He recognizes that we are all unreliable narrators of our own lives and writes about his subjects with a keen sense of understanding. Keith's books are also novelistic, extraordinary page turners that compel the reader to stay up late to finish the chapter or just the whole damn book. Um, in 2021, Keith published Empire of Pain, the secret history of the Sackler dynasty, which became an international bestseller. It was named a notable book of the year by the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time, NPR, Boston Globe, The Guardian, and you get the idea. Um, writing in the Washington Post, Jonathan Cohn said of Empire of Pain, the opioid crisis and epidemic has killed nearly half a million American people over the past two decades. Many of their loved ones, along with the public health advocates and experts, believe that one very rich, very famous family has never faced fully the consequences for its role in those deaths. Empire of Pain is an attempt to change that, to hold the family accountable in a way that nobody has quite done before by telling its story as a saga of a dynasty driven by arrogance, avarice, and indifference to mass suffering. Keith marshals a large pile of evidence and deploys it with prosecutorial precision. He's a gifted storyteller who excels at capturing the personalities. Please join me in welcoming Patrick Radden Keith. So this is a, a little bit of a whistle stop tour for me. I was in uh, San Francisco last night and Savannah before that, and I'm supposed to go back to San Francisco tomorrow. And I've never been to Portland before. And all week I'd been saying, God, it's a pity I'm not going to have a chance to spend more time there. <laughs> and now it looks like I, I might just get to do that. Um, I want to thank Andrew for that wonderful introduction, Literary Arts, for having me. Uh, the staff of the theater for being out here tonight, Powell's for being here selling books, and all of you for being intrepid enough to come out. I'm kind of amazed that this many people actually, uh, actually showed. So this will be an intimate evening. Um, and I think what I'm going to do is talk to you about Empire of Pain primarily. And, and during the Q&A, if you have questions about my other books or my podcast or anything like that, um, or The New Yorker, any of it, uh, by all means, feel free to ask about anything. Um, where to begin? So I write for The New Yorker. It's what I've wanted to do most of my life. I actually started wanting to write for The New Yorker as a high school student when I first discovered the magazine. And it took me quite a while to kind of operationalize that as an ambition. I remember being in high school and saying, to one of my teachers. That's the sort of thing I'd like to do when I grow up. And my teacher kind of rolled his eyes and said, you know, good luck. Um, 
I, it was not a direct route for me at all. I went to, to law school uh, on my way to getting to The New Yorker, which is not something I would advise any aspiring journalists. Uh, in the, that one high school student who made it out tonight. Um, uh, but, um, but eventually I did, and one of the things that I really love about writing for the magazine is that I don't have a beat. I don't have one subject that I keep coming back to. I'm able to move from one thing to another. But there are these continuities in the kinds of stories that I like to tell. Uh, they're often investigative. I like doing investigative work. I like the sort of spade work of trying to uncover things. But they're also stories. Um, they're dramas. My, my editor, who I've worked with for 15 years at The New Yorker, jokes that I do have a beat, and it's what he calls the investigative melodrama. Um, and the idea is, you know, I go out there and it's, it's investigative reporting, but I'm always trying to find, um, you know, the little opera in the details, the story that I can relate as a story. And I think that's driven by a number of things, but one of the things that I think about a lot is that in writing for a magazine, you know, as my day job, I don't take the reader's attention for granted for a second, and I find that for myself, and I think for a lot of us, right, th there is a sense in which if information is presented in the form of a narrative, a story about people and characters with conflict, um, it becomes easier to assimilate, you get drawn in. I think honestly that part of this is that for many of us, certainly for me, one of my, my oldest memories, right, is, is like lying next to my mother in bed before I was falling asleep and having her read me a story or tell me a story, that we're kind of hardwired to absorb information in that way. And so writing stories even about quite complex subjects, that's something that's always on my mind. Um, people sometimes ask me, uh, you know, when I'm writing, who's the reader that I have in my mind? As though that's a hypothetical question. But the thing about writing for a magazine is it's not abstract at all. I see those readers. Anytime I get on the New York subway, I'll have that experience of seeing somebody pull, you know, they get on at 18th Street and they pull a New Yorker out of their bag. And it's even been the case a few times that I'm on the subway and I see this happen on a week when I have a story in the magazine. <laughs> and, um, and I've had these experiences where I'm there and I see somebody turn the page and they get to my article. And Privately, my internal monologue is, should I say something? <laughs> you know, would it freak them out if I were to kind of sidle over to them and, um, and ask them what they think of the piece? And uh, on at least one occasion, I have started to make my way over to the person. There was this one memorable moment a few years ago where I started sort of inching my way over. They had just turned the page, they were reading the first paragraph of the article and I start getting closer and closer and thinking I'm gonna say something. And just as I'm about to open my mouth, they finish the first paragraph and then turn to the next article. <laughs> um, which is pretty brutal uh, in the moment, but um, I chose not to tap them on the shoulder. Um, but it, it, for me, kind of captures the sense in which, you know, I'm not taking the reader's attention for granted. You sort of need to fight for it. Uh, in every paragraph, in every sentence. And that means that I'm often looking for characters. I mean, it's a weird word to use, characters, right? As if they're characters in a novel, given that they're real people. But I am looking for people who seem larger than life and who you can build a story around. And about 
10 years ago, this is how far back you have to go uh, to get to the origins of this book, Empire of Pain. Um, I became really interested in this guy, Chapo Guzman, who was the head of the Sinaloa drug cartel in Mexico. And at the time, Chapo Guzman was a much less well-known person. I was actually still a freelancer at the time, and I pitched a piece to the New York Times Magazine. I think I pitched it in 2011. It came out in 2012. And at the time, I had to explain to the editors of the New York Times Magazine who this Chapo Guzman fellow was. And I told them, he's the biggest drug trafficker in the world, maybe the history of the world. He runs the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. And on the one hand, he's this arch criminal, a terrible guy who at the time was living in hiding up in the mountains. The, the, uh, the law enforcement on both sides of the border was unable to apprehend him. Um, but I was also interested in him as, a, as the CEO of a big multi-billion dollar cross-border commodities business. I was sort of impressed by the Sinaloa cartel as a business. Again, not to say that it's not a terrible organization, murdering people, bribing officials, uh, terrorizing big swaths of Mexico. But it was interesting to me that they were turning over billions of dollars a year exporting drugs, not just to the United States, but to countries all over the world. And so I initially said I wrote a piece, uh, this cover story in the New York Times Magazine in 2012, that was looking at the Sinaloa cartel as a business. My kind of glib take on it was I, I said it, it was like a Harvard Business School case study of a Mexican drug trafficking organization. And so there are all these questions, right? It's like when they look at vertical integration, um, how is it that they decide that they're gonna get the drugs as far as wholesalers in Chicago? but they don't want to be in the retail drug business. They just want to get it as far as the wholesalers. How do they work with accountants? How do they factor in bribery? How do they use violence to solve contract disputes in a world in which you can't sue someone? Um, all of those questions, and, and one of the big questions I was really intrigued by was just how diversified they were. So they'd always been in the cocaine business and the marijuana business and the heroin business. And eventually they, they segued into methamphetamine, which was a very successful product for them. I interviewed this one amazing woman who was talking about this guy, Nacho Coronel, who was one of, um, <laughs> one of Ch El Chapo's kind of deputies who was very involved in, in pioneering the meth business for Sinaloa. And she said, um, she said, Nacho, he was like the Steve Jobs of meth. Um, and they really did think of themselves as a business in this way. And, one thing I noticed was that in, in a very precise year, 2010, the Sinaloa drug cartel started sending more heroin into the US. They had always exported heroin into the US, but in, in smaller amounts. And suddenly, there was much more Mexican heroin on the streets in the US. And I've always been struck by a certain kind of myopia that we have when we talk about the drug trade in this country, uh, there's a tendency to blame a lot of it on Mexico, as, as if it doesn't take two to tango. And so in a lot of the discussion, certainly among law enforcement, when you suddenly found all of these seizures of Mexican heroin on the streets in the US, there was this sense of, you know, what are those crazy Mexicans up to now, right? Why would they suddenly be just fire hosing all of this heroin our way and little old us with no choice but to use it. Um, and of course, they weren't thinking of it as a, as a demand-driven issue. 
which it was, and knowing what I knew about the Sinaloa drug cartel, I knew that they were exquisitely sensitive to demand, that they knew that if on the streets of a city like Portland, there were more people looking for heroin, then they were gonna do what they could do to make sure that there was a supply of it. And as I dug into this riddle, what I learned was that the reason that there was suddenly this surge in demand for heroin was the opioid crisis. Was that there was a generation of Americans who had not started using heroin. And I can tell you now, because I've interviewed a lot of these people, that many of them thought that they would never use heroin, that they would never shoot a needle into their arm. But what they started with, their on-ramp, was prescription pharmaceuticals manufactured by Big Pharma, approved by the FDA, and prescribed by doctors. But these drugs, and they were painkillers, were chemical cousins of heroin. They both derive from the opium poppy. And so this generation of people started using these prescription painkillers, and at a certain point, they transitioned to heroin. And this is where that demand came from. So this was really intriguing for me. I've always been interested in the, the kind of weird, arbitrary lines that we draw between what's legal and what's illegal, what society sanctions and even celebrates, and what it condemns and punishes. And so it just seems strange to me that on the one hand, you have the scourge of heroin and these terrible Mexican drug trafficking organizations and street corner dealers who we really hammer and put away in prison for a long time. And on the other hand, you have these licit pharmaceutical companies that make campaign contributions and are out there kind of being celebrated as paragons of American capitalism. Very strange to me that the business of the latter category could kind of wag the dog in terms of the business of the former. And as I looked into it, I learned that the opioid crisis is an incredibly complex public health crisis that's been going on for three decades now and has killed actually at this point more than half a million Americans. And it's had these different phases. Initially, it was a prescription painkiller crisis, and then it morphed in around 2010 into a heroin crisis. And as many of you know, it has since morphed into a fentanyl crisis, an even more deadly crisis. In each of these cases, the drugs are chemically related, but they've gotten more deadly as we've gone along, and it hasn't abated. In fact, the opioid crisis has gotten worse uh, against the backdrop of uh, the, the other pandemic that we've been dealing with. And more than 100,000 Americans died of overdoses just last year. So you've got this complex public health problem but as I delved into it, I found there are all kinds of places you can point the finger, but it actually starts in a pretty legible way. It starts in a pretty simple way. It starts with one drug, OxyContin, which is a very powerful opioid painkiller, and one company, Purdue Pharma, which is a relatively small pharmaceutical company based in Stamford, Connecticut, that released OxyContin in 1996. But what really got my attention and what made me think that there might be a story here was when I learned that Purdue Pharma is a privately held company owned and controlled by the Sackler family. And the thing is, I knew the name Sackler. I grew up in Boston, and uh, when I was in high school, I, I desperately wanted, more than anything, to go to college at Columbia. And I applied to Columbia, and I didn't get in. And so I took a year off. 
And during that year, I worked a couple of different jobs, but one of them was I was an usher at a theater in Harvard Square. And I would occasionally go to the Sackler Museum in Harvard Square. And eventually, after taking that year off, I applied to Columbia again, got into Columbia, moved to New York City. And on the weekends, I would go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art on Central Park. And I would go to the Sackler Wing at the Met, which some of you, I'm sure, have been to, this beautiful space with an ancient Egyptian temple that's rebuilt there uh, inside the Met. And eventually, I moved. Um, my wife got a job, and we moved to Washington, D.C. And in D.C., we would go to the Sackler Gallery at the Smithsonian on the Mall. And I'd also lived in, in England for a few years, and the Sackler name is all over London, the British Museum, the Tate, the National Gallery. So I knew this name because it was in all of these different places, um, these kind of elite institutions. And it was kind of part of the backdrop. I'm sure it's similar for you. You see these names, and, and my passive assumption was I thought, oh, this was probably some family from the 19th century that made their money in railroads or steel, and they gave a lot of money a long time ago. And this is the philanthropic legacy. So I was kind of shocked to learn that, in fact, the vast bulk of this family's money had been made in recent decades through the sale of this already, at the time, very controversial drug. Purdue Pharma pled guilty to federal criminal charges in 2007 that it had misbranded OxyContin, essentially playing down the risks of the drug and playing up the benefits. The company had paid a $600 million fine. There'd been a lot of litigation. So people knew that this was not a great company and that the drug had a pretty toxic legacy. And yet the family that owned the company didn't seem to have experienced any kind of blowback. And I was really struck when I looked into it by how ubiquitous that name was, that they'd been so generous. They'd given away hundreds of millions of dollars in recent decades, always to universities and art museums and medical research facilities, and always with the stipulation that their name go on the wall, go on the building. And once you know to look for the name, you see it everywhere. And the way that this project started for me was I, I made that little journey that I've told you about up to now. And I went, this is in um, 2016, I went to the website of Purdue Pharma. And I knew that the family still owned the company, and I knew that they dominated the board of directors at the company. And I started looking for the Sackler name on the website of the company, and it wasn't there. I looked and looked. And this was the paradox that started this project for me, it was the idea that the name is everywhere, very conspicuously, in one world, and totally absent in the other. So, who's this family? I set out to find out, initially writing a piece for The New Yorker, and then I expanded it into what I, I don't really think of as an opioid crisis book. I think of it as a, as a kind of a biography, like a family saga, a biography of three generations of this family and the mark that they would leave on the world. And it starts with a guy named Arthur Sackler. So, Arthur is the son of immigrants. He's the oldest of three brothers. He's got a younger brother named Mortimer and another named Raymond. And their parents had come over from Europe at the turn of the last century. They were brought up in Brooklyn against the backdrop of the Great Depression. And Arthur later said that he knew by the age of four that he was gonna grow up to be a doctor because his mother kept telling him that he would. And 
in some ways, this is kind of an American dream story. It's a story of a family that left Europe with very little to build a new life on the margins of New York City. And they had advantages in the sense that the three sons were white and that they were male. They had disadvantages in that they were Jewish and they suffered tremendous anti-Semitism over a long period of time. But there was this, I think, very American notion that you could start with nothing. You could start with parents who didn't speak English in the home. And in the course of one generation, you could completely transform the fortunes of your family. And for the Sacklers, the vehicle for doing this would be education. So they sent their three kids to this big public high school. It's still there, Erasmus High School in Flatbush. And Arthur, uh, even in high school, starts kind of hustling. He was a hustler, and so he gets these jobs. He starts working uh, in the student newspaper and then becoming the advertising manager for the student newspaper and selling ads. And he gets so many jobs that he starts handing these jobs off to his younger brother, and they're all kind of very enterprising. Um, they, they start selling ads to Chesterfield cigarettes, which they put out in the student newspaper targeted at their fellow students. I feel like there's, a, there's an irony in there somewhere. So Arthur goes off to medical school and becomes a psychiatrist, but he pays his way through medical school selling advertising, you know, working as a copywriter. And what happens is he comes out of medical school and he, he wants to be a physician, but he kind of wants to do it all. And it's a really exciting time in the pharmaceutical industry. It's really the birth of big pharma as we know it. This is in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. You have all these big companies, companies like Roche and Pfizer, that are selling branded pharmaceuticals for the first time. And Arthur kind of sets himself up in business as the guy who's going to help them use all of the tricks of advertising to sell these drugs. If you've seen the show Mad Men, I think Arthur's kind of the Don Draper of pharmaceutical advertising in the 1950s. And, you know, he's a doctor himself. He has this sense of doctors as like priests or rabbis, incorruptible. And he has this insight, which is that if you want to sell drugs, it's not really the customer that you want to target. It's physicians. It's the person writing the prescriptions. And he does this in this kind of dizzying array of ways. So he's got all these kind of fancy graphics and he takes out ads in medical journals and he's got these young, what they call detail men, it was all men at the time, who would go out and meet with doctors and make the case for each new drug. And a lot of it is very aggressive. Uh, I think in retrospect, we know that a lot of it was very deceptive. There's a great story about one of the ads that Arthur put out for a drug, it was an ad that ran in a medical journal for an antibiotic, and they had um, 10 different business cards from physicians all across the country. And it said something like, you know, clinically endorsed by doctors across the land. And you've got all these different business cards, and the obvious suggestion is that these doctors have done clinical trials and endorsed the drug. So there was an investigative journalist in the late 50s who decided to look into this, and he looks at those business cards and he calls all of the doctors, but he can't reach any of them because they don't exist. Um, and this ad ran in a medical journal. So this is kind of typical of what Arthur did. He, uh, he kind of did it all. He had a medical newspaper that he started, which would be distributed free to doctors. It carried advertising for products that he advertised for. He bought a pharmaceutical company 
at the time called Purdue Frederick, which he entrusted to his little brothers to run. And there would also be ads for the pharmaceuticals that they sold. None of these conflicts of interest were ever really acknowledged. He had multiple different overlapping relationships with women. I was able to deduce at a certain point in my research that there was a time um, in this story when there were three different women all living in Manhattan and all going by the name Mrs. Arthur M. Sackler. Um, so Arthur's just this kind of protean, creative, ambitious guy. I mentioned earlier I'm always looking for characters and it's, it's hard as a nonfiction writer because you you're kind of at the mercy of what you find. You turn over rocks and you sort of see what you can find. You can't make it up. Uh, but occasionally you really luck out. And Arthur's just, it's like he walked out of the pages of a Saul Bellow novel. He's an incredible character. And he makes his first great fortune on Valium. He designed the marketing of Valium. And when he was negotiating that deal, he said to Roche, the company that made Valium, listen, I don't want you to pay me a fixed rate. What I want you to do is, in success, I want to be rewarded. And so give me an escalating series of bonuses that's tied to how many pills you sell. And there's no ceiling on the escalation. And Valium proceeds to become the biggest blockbuster in the history of the pharmaceutical industry. So Arthur becomes tremendously rich. And it's at this point that he starts giving money away always with the stipulation that his name go on things. And he was really ingenious when it came to this. I mean, the deals themselves, you sort of have to admire them even for their sneakiness. There's a story I tell in the book about how at a certain point in the 1960s, the Metropolitan Museum of Art needed money, in part because it's free. It's this amazing art collection, but anybody could go and you don't have to pay. So they needed to raise money, they needed air conditioning. And Arthur came through and he said, I'll tell you what, I've got a way in which I can give you a bunch of cash. There was a, a corridor that had all of these exquisite ancient Asian artifacts in it. And Arthur said, I'm going to buy all of those from you and then donate them back to you. So they never actually have to leave the hall, but I want you to put a little sign next to each one that says it is a gift of Arthur Sackler. So my name is going to be next to all of these. And then what I'm going to do is declare this on my taxes, but <laughs> I'm going to buy them from you to give you the donation at the price that you paid decades ago for these works. And when I declare them on my taxes, I'm going to declare them for the present market value. So this is a gift by Arthur Sackler, it puts his name on all of these objects. The works themselves never leave the building. The Met gets an infusion of cash and Arthur actually makes money on the deal. So he starts doing this and, and giving all this money away. And I, I was, when I was doing this research, I was trying to figure out why would he do this? What's motivating this? And there was this other little paradox that goes back to that experience with the website, which is that he was quite secretive about his business. It seems weird that you'd be so secretive about what you do in your business, but also want your name to be on the wall in all of these places. You would think seeing the name etched in marble would beg the question, well, who is that? Where did this fortune come from? And as I was digging around in my research, you know, Arthur died before, long before I started writing this book, so it's not like I could talk to him. And I thought I had tracked down all the interviews that he ever gave, which wasn't many. I thought I'd, you know, I'd gone to about a dozen different archives. I thought I'd found all the letters that were held in different archives. And at a certain point in the 80s, he gave some money to Tufts University to build a building with his name on it. And I had this idea, I thought, I'll bet the student newspaper covered the opening of that. 
So I contacted a, you know, I, I tried, the, the student newspaper wasn't online, the archives weren't online. I contacted a librarian at Tufts and said, could you pull, you know, all the issues during this week when I know the place opened? And they did, they converted it from microfilm and sent me a PDF. And it turns out there was a special issue of the student newspaper that had an interview with Arthur Sackler that I'd never seen before, that had never been online, nobody had ever written about it. And in this interview, he tells this story. So the story he tells is that during the Great Depression, his father, Isaac, who was a very proud man, had lost everything. And he was devastated by this. And he gathered his three sons to him, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. And he said, listen, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay for your education. Our whole plan was that you would use education to kind of create a beachhead in the new world and build the fortune of this family. But I'm not going to be able to underwrite it. You're going to have to pay your own way through school. But I haven't given you nothing. And Isaac Sackler said in Arthur's recounting, in fact, I've given you the most important thing that a parent can give a child. I've given you a good name. And if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another fortune. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And not too long after this, Isaac dies. And not too long after that, Arthur Sackler starts giving away money, always with the stipulation that the Sackler name on the wall. So there's this process, this kind of multi-decade process of veneration of the family name. And you see it. I mean, it sort of, it, it translates not just through Arthur's life, but into the lives of his brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, and indeed through the subsequent generations. And I do think for me, that was this kind of rosebud moment. I think it explains this pathology of the family to put the name on the wall. Arthur dies in 1987, and he's celebrated when he dies as this great philanthropist, this great man, somebody whose, whose legacy was sort of generally described by his many VIP friends um, as a, a benign one, you know, as somebody who'd given many, many gifts to society. To me, looking at his life uh, from a distance of decades later, I, I think that he had a complicated legacy, but I think a big part of what he was trying to do was take the relationship between a doctor and a patient and put this wedge between them, which is commerce. Let's turn that into a business opportunity. So he dies in 87, but his brothers are still going strong and they have this company, Purdue Frederick, that he had given them to run. Purdue Frederick, for years and years, had these uh, pretty unglamorous products, mostly over-the-counter products. Um, there was an earwax remover, uh, there was a laxative, Seneca. Um, there was a, a, a long time Purdue Frederick uh, sales rep from the early days who, who sort of joked, yeah, I was, I was a real hit at parties um, when I talked about what I, what, you know, the products I worked on. Um, but in the 1970s and 80s, they start doing research into pain. And this coincides with a reassessment that happened uh, in the medical profession on both sides of the Atlantic on the subject of pain. There were some doctors who felt, we haven't been taking pain seriously enough. We haven't been treating it aggressively. We've been allowing patients to languish in pain. And one of the explanations that they had for this was they said there had been uh, too much caution on the part of doctors about prescribing opioids. So when I say opioids, I mean drugs that derive from the opium 
poppy. And doctors have known for thousands of years that drugs that come from the opium poppy have these two qualities. One is that they are miraculous at easing terrible pain. And the other is that they can be quite addictive. So there was always this sense that you had these kind of twinned, inextricable qualities, which meant that doctors were uh, often quite hesitant to prescribe these drugs. And certainly, if you think about drugs like morphine, there was a sense for a long time that this was sort of the, it's like the remedy you kept on the top shelf. You would reach for it when other remedies had failed. Uh, it was often used for cancer pain, end-of-life care, but it wasn't a situation where you immediately went to morphine because of the specter of addiction. And there was this new school of physicians who said, you know, we've been a little too puritanical about this, and we're allowing people to suffer needlessly when we have this solution available to them. So Purdue Frederick develops this drug called MS-Contin, which is a cancer drug. And it's basically just morphine. It's generic morphine, but they came up with this coating, this is the content part, which would allow the morphine to slowly release into your bloodstream over a course of hours. And this meant that you could have a, a big jumbo dose of morphine and you wouldn't have to take as many doses. Um, and it meant crucially that you know, people could be dosed outside the hospital, right? They could be treated for their pain and not have to be on a drip. Um, so they put this drug out, it's a big success. And eventually, the patent for MS content is running out. And they think, well, we've got to introduce something else. What are we going to do? And they came up with the idea of using another opioid, oxycodone, which is more powerful than morphine, and using that same content coding. And there are these incredible memos when they discuss this in which there are conversations at the company where they say, so we love the idea of, you know, we're going to do oxycodone, but with this this content coding, it'll be a, a new kind of painkiller. But wouldn't it be great if we could target not just cancer patients? The thing is, there's only so many people who have cancer. What if we could find a way to position this drug for even moderate pain, back pain, sports injuries, post-operative pain, fibromyalgia, arthritis? And as they're talking about this, they say, you know, the problem is that there's this stigma, right? There's this sense that you only should use these drugs for these really extreme cases. And what they formulate is a plan to position OxyContin to be a drug that would be more widely used. And in order to do that, they need to change the mind of the medical establishment about how risky these drugs are. So at this point, it's Mortimer and Raymond Sackler and Raymond's son, Richard. There's a whole second generation that comes in, and the family proceeds to launch OxyContin. And the really amazing thing is they launched this drug in 1996 using the toolkit that Uncle Arthur invented. So they hire this army of sales reps. They have all of this medical literature, which seems very official, but in retrospect is pretty bogus, saying, actually, these drugs aren't addictive. They're not addictive at all. If you're a pain patient, they're not addictive. There's no side effects. The actual marketing slogan for OxyContin when they first got going was, it's the one to start with and the one to stay with, which is pretty shocking in retrospect. But if you're in the business of selling drugs, I mean, that's, like a, that's, a, that's a tagline that the Sinaloa cartel uh, could admire. Um, some of you may be wondering, well, where was the FDA 
in all of this, and it's an interesting story. So there's a guy named Curtis Wright, who was the official at the FDA, whose job it was to oversee the drug and both approve its safety to consumers, but also uh, determine the, the, the efficacy, say it works, and sign off on those marketing claims. And he does. He does it in record time. And not long after OxyContin goes on sale, Curtis Wright starts thinking that he might like to leave the FDA, maybe get a job in the private sector. Um, and there's a prize for anybody who can tell me which company he ends up at, at three times his government salary. And I should say, there's nothing illegal about that. That kind of revolving door with our regulatory agencies and the businesses that they're regulating happens all the time. It still happens. They send this army of sales reps out. The sales reps are going to physicians across the country. They're targeting uh, family physicians a lot of the time, people who don't know much about the treatment of pain, and they're saying we have this miraculous new solution. They start looking at doctors who prescribe a lot of the drug and then saying, hey doc, we're setting up a speakers bureau in which we take people who are real champions for OxyContin and we pay you to give speeches to other doctors. And then they get these other doctors who haven't been initiated yet and they say, how would you like to come to a weekend seminar in which we will tell you about the treatment of pain and OxyContin and we're gonna do it at a golf resort in Arizona in February. And a lot of these doctors said yes, thousands of them said yes. There end up being thousands of doctors just working at the speaker's bureau, getting paid to give these speeches. There may be physicians in the room tonight. I've had many, to me, very funny conversations with physicians in which they say, oh, I know the pharmaceutical companies do these things, but I mean, I personally would never be influenced by that kind of thing. Um, of course, you know, they can buy me a steak dinner, but that's not gonna change the way I prescribe. It sort of goes back to Arthur Sackler's sense of doctors as incorruptible as priests, as rabbis. But I've also seen the internal papers of Purdue Pharma in which they talk about how at a certain point the company is spending $9 million a year just to buy food for doctors. And Richard Sackler, Raymond's son, who ends up taking over the company and being the real champion of OxyContin, he looks at the details and says, I wanna know what the return on investment on every dollar that we spend on food for doctors is. And guess what? It's pretty good. And when you get into the details of it, they learn that if you, if you buy food for doctors on a weekend, it translates into an even higher rate of prescribing than if you buy it on a weeknight. So it is this kind of interesting thing where on the one hand you have these doctors who feel as though they're not being influenced. And on the other hand, the company knows they absolutely are. So you have this kind of marketing blitz. The drug is a huge success. And I should say for a lot of pain patients, it works. It actually does relieve terrible pain. And they start writing letters to the company saying, you've given me my life back. But the company also starts getting another kind of letter that says, I'm struggling with this thing. My doctor prescribed it and I'm using it more than I should be. Um, the pain is coming back more quickly. I feel like I'm not in control of my use of this drug. My child started using this drug. My child overdosed. My child died. And more and more over the years, and this is happening not too long after the drug is released, word is coming back to the company that people are abusing it, that it can be abused, it can be addictive, that people are really suffering. And the interesting thing to me 
and I think, you know, I would encourage any of you to think about this, is what do you do in that situation? You had these idealistic dreams for this drug, you put it out there in the world, it becomes a huge blockbuster. Like there's a big moment where it, it eclipses Viagra as the biggest selling pharmaceutical product on the market. And you're getting letters from some pain patients who say, this is fantastic, you've given me my life back, but you start to get these other letters. What do you do? I like to think that, you know, if I weren't going to yank the product off the shelves, I would at least try and slow the train down a little, but that's not what the Sacklers do. Instead, they make this breathtaking pivot, which is they say, well, the problem isn't the drug. The problem is these people. It's these people of poor moral character who have addictive personalities. And if they weren't abusing OxyContin, they'd be abusing other things. They're junkies. In Richard Sackler's words, they are the scum of the earth. And I should say, that is a, a really brilliant pivot, I think, in retrospect, because I do think that in our culture, our kind of libertarian capitalist culture in this country, we have this sense that you can take a product that hurts a lot of people and sell it, put it out into the marketplace, make a lot of money doing it. And if things go wrong, as long as somebody's making some, some decision after you've put it out into the stream of commerce, there's a sense that you should have no moral or legal accountability. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. It's the same idea. The problem isn't the drug. It's the people that use them. I should just stop briefly and say, um, so this is a biography of three generations of the Sackler family. This was not an authorized biography. Um, <laughs> they didn't cooperate uh, with this book. Um, in fact, they uh, spent two years threatening to sue me while I worked on it, uh, which was pretty unpleasant. But I think typical of the way in which they operate, there's a little bit of a kill the messenger approach. And so when you had journalists going back 20 years ago raising alarms, the company would just come at them like a ton of bricks. When there were lawsuits, they would settle them or fight them. Eventually, there's this prosecution uh, that happened. Federal prosecutors in Virginia went after the company. And what they wanted to do was um, flip these three senior executives who were just beneath the Sacklers. So they, they want to charge those guys with felonies and the danger of jail time. And the idea was, if they can do that, those guys are soft targets. They're going to roll on the Sacklers who control the company. But what the Sacklers did was sent a couple of their lawyers, Mary Jo White, a very prominent lawyer, and, and another um, really, really prominent, well-regarded lawyer uh, at the time, uh, Rudy Giuliani, um, and uh, had them go to Washington and go over the heads of the prosecutors to essentially make this thing go away. So the felony charges against the executives are dropped, which means that they no longer have an incentive to flip on the Sacklers. They end up pleading guilty to misdemeanor charges. They get paid subsequently by the company. The family votes to pay those guys millions of dollars. I mean, it's like something out of a mob fantasy, right? The idea that you have these people who could be witnesses, they end up saying, we're not gonna be witnesses, and they get paid and they quietly go away. And I had a little bit of this as I started writing the book, you know, these legal threats would, um, would come in. 
And what I was forced to do is what we call a write around, which is when you don't have access to the people at the center of your story, but you talk to all the people around them. And so for me, that meant dozens and dozens of people who'd worked at the company, people who knew the Sacklers socially. One of the nice things about writing a New Yorker article before doing a book is I think of it as like putting the bat signal up in the sky. You tell people, I'm working on this now. And I'm very easy to find on the internet. So I, I, after the article came out, I got a, um, I got an email from a guy who said, I was Richard Sackler's college roommate. Would you like to talk? <laughs> yes, I would like to talk. Um, I used a lot of legal documents. There were tens of thousands of pages of legal documents, um, including some really amazing uh, things. This is one virtue of having gone to law school is I know how to kind of find some of the goodies that may lie hidden um, in exhibits attached to dry-looking legal filings. Um, there was a, a point where I, I found a family WhatsApp, a private family WhatsApp log from the Mortimer Sackler family. Over a year, they all had a kind of a group chat, the way some of you may, with your family. Um, and it ended up attached in this exhibit, and I got it. There's this incredible moment where Mortimer Sackler Jr. says to all of his relatives, um, you know, things are getting a little crazy out there, so we need, to, we need to make sure that we talk about all the sensitive stuff where it's safe, here on WhatsApp. Um, which I, I thought was, uh, was pretty funny. Um, I interviewed a lot of people who were, um, you know, people who might have even been kind of invisible to the Sacklers, administrative assistants, uh, doormen. There was a woman who was a housekeeper for Mortimer Sackler Sr. for 30 years, who was a source for me. Uh, there was a yoga instructor, um, uh, hilariously, a yoga instructor who traveled with the family to the Turks and Caicos, because that's what you do if you're the Sacklers. You, when you go on vacation, you bring your yoga instructor. Um, hilariously, I, I was able to identify this person as a yoga instructor who'd gone to the Turks and Caicos with the family because I think there were literally so many yoga instructors who'd gone over the years that it would have been hard for them to figure out which one it was that talked to me. Um, this story, uh, you know, I, I think is, is, is pretty outrageous. It ends in a place that, that I think uh, is also outrageous, which is in bankruptcy court. So there end up being thousands of lawsuits against Purdue Pharma, more than they can make go away. And some of the states actually start suing individual members of the Sackler family. And what happens at that point is the family kind of kicks the company into bankruptcy. They say it's bankrupt. Now, OxyContin has generated $35 billion in revenue since it was released. So you might be wondering, how could the company declare bankruptcy? And the answer is that about 10 years before this happened, the Sacklers started quietly pulling money out of the company. I believe because they knew that this day would come. They knew that someday somebody was gonna to have to pay the piper. So they start quietly pulling money out, 100 million here, 100 million there. They eventually take $10 billion out of the company and put it in their own private accounts, some of them offshore. And then they say, ah, the company has no money left. We can't handle all of these, bank these, these lawsuits. We've gotta declare bankruptcy. And uh, in a kind of oddity of American corporate law, they were able to select the bankruptcy judge that they declared bankruptcy before. And they picked a judge who subscribes to this fairly exotic idea, which is that if there's a company that declares bankruptcy before him, he has this incredible power, which is that he can uh, essentially say to people who haven't declared bankruptcy that they will be free from any liability associated with this stuff 
in the future. So the Sacklers are on the sidelines with their $10 billion they took out of the company. And the judge says, as part of this bankruptcy process, I want to issue the Sacklers a sweeping grant of immunity from any future liability associated with Purdue Pharma, OxyContin, or the opioid crisis. The Sacklers in exchange say that they're not going to apologize, they're not going to acknowledge any wrongdoing, but they will pay $6 billion. And that might seem like a lot of money, um, but the opioid crisis is estimated to have cost more than $2 trillion. Uh, I have a feeling there are probably people in the room tonight who may have lost loved ones, and I think even talking about this in terms of money can sometimes seem pretty vulgar. Um, it's not going to bring anyone back. It's not real accountability. And then the really interesting thing is that the Sacklers are estimated to be worth about $11 billion, and they've agreed to pay the $6 billion out over 19 years. And if you look at what an $11 billion fortune gives you, just in terms of generating returns every year, investment returns, interest. What that means is, over 19 years, they can pay $6 billion without ever touching their principal. They're going to be more rich when they're done paying than they are when they start. So, um, in some ways, this is, I think, a, a very sad story, you know, not just about this family and about the opioid crisis, but about the failure of our institutions, right? The failure of the Department of Justice, the failure of the FDA, the failure of the courts. There is one hopeful note that I want to end on, and it's about one of the heroes of my story, a woman named Nan Golden. Uh, Nan Golden is one of our great photographers, and uh, one of the great American photographers, whose work hangs in many of the museums that bear the Sackler name. And after my piece came out in 2017, Nan Golden got in touch with me. She wanted to meet, and we got together, and she said, listen, I am overcoming an awful addiction to OxyContin. I've been in rehab. And she had read my article about the Sacklers, and she'd never realized that this family whose name she knew from the museum world, which she's a creature of, had created this drug that nearly killed her. And so I remember vividly we had tea, and she said, I'm going to start a movement. I'm going to get all these museums to take their name off the wall. And some of this is just probably me being a cynic or of a different generation. Like, it all seemed kind of retro, what she was talking about to me, the kind of activism. I was like, so you're not just going to tweet stuff? And she said, no, I'm going to start a movement. And I kind of said, well, good for you. Good luck with that. You know, you keep me posted. You let me know how that goes for you. Um, I didn't think she stood a chance. But she went out and she started having these demonstrations. She started a group. And they went to the Met, they went to the Guggenheim. There was a night when they snuck into the Guggenheim on the night when everybody's in there. It's the free night, Saturday night. And if you know the Guggenheim with that kind of snaking uh, path that goes up, that beautiful Frank Lloyd Wright design, they all sort of snaked their way up to the top. And in advance, they had prepared these little pieces of paper that looked like prescriptions for OxyContin. And they'd made 8,000 of them. So they snuck them in and uh, they had in advance, told a reporter from the New York Times to be on the ground in the atrium of the Guggenheim, pointing his camera up. And at the appointed hour, they go poof, and these 8,000 prescriptions come fluttering out and pinwheeling out. It looks like a blizzard. And the New York Times photographer looks up and click, the photo ends up in the New York Times. So this was Nan's brilliance, is that she had this incredible credibility as somebody who was recovering from an OxyContin addiction, but also 
an activist and a photographer whose work had this huge credibility in the art world. And one by one, it took a while, but one by one, these museums start to take the Sackler name down. They start to chisel it off the walls. And it's the museums, it's universities. We're all holding out for the Met, and then finally the Met did it as well. Uh, there's a great documentary which is out now and I'd encourage all of you to check out called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which Laura Poitras made. It's actually nominated for an Oscar and it's about Nan's campaign and you can see some of this footage. It's incredible. Uh, so I'd encourage you to see it because I think it's a reminder that activism still works, you know, that you still can challenge the very powerful. And listen, is it accountability? No. Is it justice? No. Is it enough? Not at all. It's not going to bring anybody back. But I think if you think about this family, which invested so much of its time and energy and money over decades, putting that name up, there's a special sting in the idea that now that name is such a source of shame that all these institutions are taking it down. And so what I want to leave you with is that rosebud moment, that story about Isaac Sackler gathering his sons to him in the Great Depression almost a hundred years ago and saying, you know, if you lose a fortune, you can always go out and make another fortune. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And this to me is the ghost of Isaac Sackler across the century. And we see what his family did. They didn't heed his advice. So they kept the fortune, but they lost the good name. And I don't think they're ever going to get it back. Thank you. Thank you, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, so this is your chance to ask him a question. Of course, you'll all get to ask a question if you want to. And um, Liz will be collecting cards, so write a question down on the card. We've got some we got in advance, um, which we do online. But we always ask our visiting guests to recommend three books. And um, you don't have to remember because I have them here. I was going to say, I've totally <laughs> forgotten. Um, one of the recommendations was Oak Flat by Lauren Redness. Oh yeah, God, it's an amazing, amazing book. Um, Lauren Redness is, um, it's kind of impossible to categorize what she does. She's an artist, a painter, an illustrator, uh, but also a journalist and a nonfiction writer. And Oak Flat is, um, is about a battle in the Southwest between, um, between uh, a Native American community um, and, and some land that is very sacred to them and a mining company <laughs> uh, that has other designs on that land. And it's an incredible work of journalism and storytelling. It's also just very, very beautiful. Um, I think her work is unlike anything anyone else is doing right now. Highly recommend that book and her other books as well. Uh, the second one was How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. Yeah, some of you may be familiar with this book. It was a big bestseller and, and, and you know, won every conceivable prize and distinction um, about a year ago. Uh, Clint Smith is an amazing writer. He writes for The Atlantic. He's a poet. Um, and uh, How the Word is Passed is about the legacy of, of, of slavery in this country, but specifically how we, how we remember it um, in different places and different locations. And he's just an incredible, um, a, a very kind of poetic, approachable writer who I think um, thinks in a kind of deeply philosophical, compassionate way about these questions of public memory. Um, it's a ter terrific book. 
And the third one was um, Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan. Yeah. Um, okay, so this one I've been really strenuously recommending to people. This is a really short novel. It's about 100 pages long by an Irish novelist, Claire Keegan. Um, I'm reluctant to tell you too much about it. It's really beautiful, and it's, um, it's a novella, basically, but she writes these very, very short kind of... Um, uh, distilled books and it's about again without giving too much detail it's about a theme that I'm very interested in which is what do you do if you're a part of a community and you realize that something terrible is happening in the community are you, do you look away do you focus on your own family and just sort of think listen I'm gonna try and live a righteous life and I'll ignore the terrible thing that's happening right over there or do I do something about it I you'll read it in a sitting um, I read it on a plane, and I was I was in tears by the end of it, and in a middle seat, and and uh, and uh, the people on either side of me were just wondering what is going on with this guy. But but they were the first ones I recommended it to. So um, please, yeah, pick it up. Thank you. Um, you've had access to and spent a lot of time in archives and libraries. Do you have a favorite library? Which is a very Portland question, I'll say. Oh. I have so many. I mean, I um, I really love the New York Public Library. I did a fellowship there uh, that kind of changed my life about 20 years ago when I was just starting out as a writer. Um, but I grew up in Boston, and there's a really beautiful old library. It's kind of a membership library called the Athenaeum, um, close to the State House in Boston, and and that was a place that uh, my mother was a member of when I was growing up, and I was just. Um, it gave me a, a real reverence for books, but I love I love all libraries. I was in this amazing, um, the the new high school library today, which is a pretty spectacular place to be. So yeah. Um, how did the Ireland book slash idea catch you? And maybe I'll add to that that you're working on a project beyond the book that's based on the book, and maybe you could talk about that too, if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. So um, in 20, I had no, it's funny with my obnoxiously Irish name, I think people sometimes assume that, um, you know, I was like always itching to write about the troubles. Uh, not true. Uh, what happened was in 2013, Dolores Price died. This is the woman who's the central figure in the book. Um, uh, she, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about characters. I read an obituary of her in the New York Times and it described this woman who was the first frontline soldier um, in the IRA who was a woman. And I think in, to the degree that I knew about the Troubles, it had been a very male story. And um, I was shocked to learn that in 1973, she and her sister had been imprisoned in Brixton Prison as members of the IRA for trying to blow up London. And they went on hunger strike. And I, I had, when I thought about the hunger strikes, I thought about Bobby Sands and the men in the 80s. I hadn't realized that there were these two women in the 70s um, who had done it. And then she... You know, she ends up kind of surviving, marrying Stephen Ray, who was sort of at the time Ireland's answer to a, a movie star. I mean, he was the, the biggest actor in Ireland. Um, and feeling these misgivings about some of the things she had done in her youth. And that to me was a very intriguing question was what happens with radical politics? Like all those young people who joined the IRA, they were all obsessed with Che Guevara, right? But Che dies, he dies young. Like what happens if you don't die? What happens if you, you, know, you end up in your 40s or 50s and you have PTSD, you have kids of your own, you're thinking through the things you did when you were young. And um, I was just really fascinated by her as a character and so that was what kind of drew me into that. And um, we are, inshallah, if everything goes, goes to plan, 
on August on April 17th, we start shooting a 10-part limited series based on Say Nothing um, for FX and Hulu. Um, so we like we have cast our young Dolores Price, a really amazing um, Irish actress from Belfast named Lola Pettigrew, and um, yeah, super exciting. Congratulations! It's really cool. What is your take on Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? It's oh, a great question. Man, I mean, where to begin? <laughs> I. It's funny. I wrote a. I wrote. Uh, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way. I'm, I, I'll probably. I'll get back tonight, and my Twitter account will have been suspended. Um, the. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a piece in the New Yorker that came out in June about this this uh, this guy named Joshua Schulte, and Josh Schulte was a, a coder, a hacker who worked for the CIA, and he developed cyber weapons for the CIA. And what happened was he had a conflict with a guy in his office. Um, they really didn't like each other. And at first they would like shoot rubber bands at each other and throw things at each other and like trash each other's desks. And then it kind of escalated from there. And like, you know, one of them took out a restraining order against the other one. And then Josh Schulte, um, I guess as an act of retaliation, uh, leaked, you know, this arsenal of cyber weapons to WikiLeaks. Um, the, his nickname in the office was the nuclear solution, or the nuclear option, because he was always overreacting. <laughs> and I had a little riff at the end of that piece about how I think we live, we live in the era of the boy emperor, of these men, and it's always men, who um, have great technical savvy and prowess, but are emotionally tremendously immature. And it's kind of a scary paradox of our time. But um, yeah, this is kind of the way I feel about uh, certainly Musk and his, his antics lately. I will say with Musk specifically, and I think this is probably true for Bezos as well, um, one thing I thought about with the Sacklers a lot was that from the outside, I think you assume that billionaires get all the best advice. And what I found with the Sacklers was the opposite was true, that in fact, it was a real liability to be a billionaire because you're surrounded by all these people who rely on their livelihood on you hearing the answers from them that you like to hear. And so over time, what that means is the people who, like with the Sacklers, the people who told them, hey, what if you gave some money to, you know, victims of the opioid crisis and not just art museums? And those people would like find that they didn't have a job anymore. Um, and the people who said, you have nothing to apologize for, uh, you know, you're the real victim here, were the ones who got promoted. Um, I think there are analogies, certainly in Musk world, and uh, arguably with Donald Trump as well there, that the, um, the kind of echo chamber thing can make you quite delusional after a while. What was your first piece for The New Yorker? And how many rejections did you get before they said yes? Oh, man. Clearly an aspiring writer in the audience. T so here's, okay, yeah, it was a long road. I mean, I started, I have on my wall a rejection letter from the New Yorker. I framed it um, from, I framed it recently, but um, I kept it. It's from 1998. And my first piece ran in the magazine in 2006. And 
there's two ways of looking at that. As my, my, if my wife were here, my wife would be like, 1998, when you were a junior in college. Um, you know, like, you know, where did you get off? What, like, what were you expecting them to be like, sweet, yeah, like, come and be the youngest staff writer at the New Yorker? Um, so, okay, so there was some hubris probably in, uh, in, in pitching them that early on. But the, but the other way of looking at it is um, it was eight years that I sent them pitches. And um, eventually the piece that they accepted was a, a, a piece that became my second book, The Snakehead, about this woman whose name was Sister Ping who lived in Chinatown in New York City and she was a human smuggler. She brought over thousands of people from China into the US. Not a human trafficker, these were people who, who paid her. They wanted to be transported from one place to the other. And what was interesting to me about her is that she was prosecuted by the federal government and ended up actually dying in prison. Um, but in Chinatown, she was a hero. That in Chinatown, the people whose lives she had helped change regarded her um, as this incredibly benevolent figure. And that the idea that she could be perceived in these very different ways in these different communities was interesting to me. So that was my first piece for the magazine. And I should add, if it was an aspiring journalist who asked that question, um, I got that assignment and I published that piece and I thought I'd made it. Um, but in fact, I freelanced for the magazine for another six years. They, would, they didn't put me on staff um, for six more years. I had to continue freelancing and doing any kind of hustle I could on the side to, to make ends meet. What did you think of the show Dope Sick and the portrayal of the Sacklers? How accurate do you think it was? Um, the first thing I should say is that... Uh, Beth Macy, who wrote the great book, Dope Sick, is a friend of mine and somebody I have really high regard for. And Danny Strong, who, who created the show with Beth, um, I think is great. There were a lot of things I loved about Dope Sick. Um, I had some issues with the way the Sacklers were portrayed. I, I thought, to, to me, that was one of the weaker parts of the show. Um, I thought the Michael Keaton storyline was amazing. I, I loved all the stuff at the end about medically assisted treatment, which I think is a hugely important issue that we should all be talking about. And I was glad that they that they had a platform for that in that show. The stuff with the Sacklers felt a little bit cartoonish to me. I mean, just the fact that like they would have their board meetings, I guess, like in the Sackler gallery, like the, they, the you know they would have these like weird board meetings where they're like eating grapes and drinking wine, surrounded by paintings. Um, which, you know, isn't, I mean, they're, they're not quite that cartoonish. In a way, it's, the, it's how banal they are that, that is interesting to me. Um, so, uh, yeah, to, to me, that was actually the, the aspect of the show that I liked the least. But listen, I mean, I, I, like, I wrote a book about this. Of course, that's the aspect I'm going to like. Of course, I'm going to be the, the critic when it comes to that. I thought overall, Dope Sick was tremendous, and you should all watch it. Now, there's a, a whole bunch of questions in here that revolve around the question of research and really the mechanics of research, I think, in some ways, that you are bringing, you're, you're reading probably thousands of pages of documents and some of them are really dry. I mean, how do you sort of pull that all together into what turns into like, I mean, Empire of Pain is one of the best nonfiction books I think I've ever read in terms of its like novelistic structure almost, you know what I mean, even though it's being fashioned out of real life. So can you talk about like, I think there's a lot of folks here probably, and I know there are, who are just interested in this idea of how do you research, generate it, then make it cohesive, because it just sounds like it could just explode into a pretty big mess if you're not tracking it in some way. Yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, the, the first thing, it's, it's funny, I, I talked to a group of writers uh, this afternoon, and one thing that I told them is that for me as a reader, if there's one thing that really annoys me, 
it's when I feel like somebody's done a lot of great research in the research phase of a project. So they've accumulated this like huge pile of research. And then when they sit down to write, it's as if what they're doing is they sit down to write and they're just pushing that pile across the table at me. <laughs> um, like I read it, now you read it. Um, <laughs> and I don't think that is the job of a writer. And I get like actively quite pissed off when I feel as though somebody's really excelled at the research. Um, and in some ways, like, you know, may, maybe even because of how good the research is, they're just kind of like, all right, I'm going to just dump it on you without any consideration whatsoever for um, what I always think of as just like how you deal the cards out in a way that will be pleasurable for the reader. And um, so for me, one question is just distillation, right? What's in, what's out? What's the story that we're telling here? What's a great detail or a cool character, but extraneous to the story that you're telling. Um, it's funny, when I did my Northern Ireland book, there's this weird thing that happens when you, and this happens everywhere you go as a reporter, but like nowhere more than in Northern Ireland, where I'd go to meet someone and I'd like meet somebody at a pub and the idea is they're gonna tell me about this guy that they knew, John. And so we'd sit down and they'd be like, I'm gonna tell you about John. But in order to understand John, you need to know about his brother, Brendan. <laughs> and they'd be like, and the thing about Brendan is, it was never the same after his girlfriend Mary broke up with him. And Mary had her sainted mother, Colette. And Colette had such a close relationship with the parish priest. And like suddenly, you know, we've been talking for five minutes, and we're like 50 miles from John. And each of those people along the way is, is a great story. They're great characters. But I always felt as though, for instance, like in a lot of the books about the Troubles, I felt as though it was this, it's like too much. It's like the, you know, it's like the all-you-can-eat buffet. And for the reader, um, even if each page is interesting by itself, the kind of the way the narrative gets kind of so bogged down is a problem. So for me, it's just distill, distill, distill. What's the story I'm telling? Who are my characters? Um, and so I come up with these kind of North Stars. And so in, the, in both of those books, Empire of Pan and Say Nothing, I was, at a certain point, I realized who's my cast of characters. And then it's this thing where it's like, if it didn't happen to them, even if it's important historically, I'm probably not gonna pay too much attention. I wanna see this through their eyes. Um, but it's hard. I mean, to me, the, the, the whole name of the game is, is, um, is, is processing all that stuff and then being, and knowing to look for the, what I think of as like the gold threads, you know, those little, every now and then you just find that. And sometimes it's, it's um, you know, you read a whole book uh, and there's, there's one image or a few lines and that's the one thing that you need from that book. And sometimes you read the whole book and there's nothing. Um, but I do think that the, I think it's a very good lesson to know that just because you read the book doesn't mean you need to quote the book, that just because you've absorbed something doesn't mean it belongs in the piece of writing that you're gonna produce. Can you talk a little bit about Winds of Change, um, your podcast, which I think is all wrapped up now, is that right? Well, I mean, unless, you know, some great breaking development happens, right. but yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. Um, can I talk about Wind of Change? So I, I, did in, I did a podcast called Wind of Change, I wrote it, or I sort of, I was doing it kind of honestly in tandem with Empire of Pain. It was probably the most fun I've ever had uh, working because 
being a reporter and writer is so solitary. I'm always out interviewing people, but like most of the time it's just kind of me alone. And um, making a podcast, I felt like I ran off and joined a band. Like I had my crew, you know, and we would, we traveled, this is pre-COVID, um, we traveled around the world. It was a very uh, panoramic kind of globetrotting podcast. So we traveled all over and um, I loved doing it. And I loved the alchemy of sort of having an idea and then talking to really brilliant producers and editors and composers and um, seeing them kind of come back with, it's like I have a rough idea in my head and then they come back and they say, here's a, here's a sort of finished and far more beautiful and dynamic version of that rough idea that you had. That was all new to me, I, you know, that kind of um, collaborative, like the whole is more than the sum of its parts thing. For those of you who, who are unfamiliar, the podcast is, um, there's a very classic uh, power ballad by the West German hair metal band, The Scorpions, called Wind of Change, um, which if I whistled it for you, you might recognize. It came out in 1990, uh, right around the time the Berlin Wall fell, and it became sort of the soundtrack to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, it had this message of freedom and hope and this idea that this was kind of sweeping across Europe. And what Wind of Change is, is about is I got a tip about a decade ago from a good friend of mine who's also been a source for me over the years, my friend Michael, who told me that he had heard that uh, the Scorpions, this German metal band, didn't actually write Wind of Change. The CIA wrote Wind of Change. Um, and so the podcast is kind of an offbeat effort to get to the bottom of that question, but also I hope to sort of bring listeners into the world of what it is to be an investigative journalist. And, and um, it's like a, on its face, it's a bonkers, silly uh, question, but that was part of what was fun about it is that we, we took a very serious-minded approach to a story that's mostly about guys who, you know, wear leather pants and tons of hairspray. <laughs> uh, we always finish, well, not always. We almost always finish with advice for young writers because there's often a lot of young writers in here, but we are recording for the radio and those young writers do listen to that show. So can you've talked in bits and pieces about advice. Are there anything else you could offer the writers in the room or the writers out in the airwaves eventually about the advice that you would give to them beyond what you've already talked about today? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say two things, and, and I think um, one of them I knew early on and the other I've figured out much later. The one that I knew early on was um, think about yourself as a, I think this is actually true for anyone, whatever you do. I think it's almost as if for some people they have two brains. There's your reader brain and there's your writer brain. And it's like impossible for people when they're doing one to imagine the other. And I think that this is uh, something that bedevils us all. So for instance, um, I get emails, my editors get emails. Sometimes young journalists say, oh, I have a pitch for the New Yorker, here's my pitch. And they show me the pitch. And the pitch is like this dense, just acre after acre after acre of like unbroken up paragraphs. And then they say like, I've taken the liberty of attaching a PDF with my 27 pages of And I try and explain like, if you were somebody who got a lot of emails and you got this email that is gonna take like 35 minutes for somebody to even figure out what it is you're saying, you'd be pissed. You would delete that email, you would move on. It's this weird thing where people forget sometimes, I think when they sit down to write, what it's like for them to read. And so that would be my first big thing is, think about what turns you on as a reader. What excites you? 
be conscious of the moments when you really lock into something, when you feel like that undertow is just kind of pulling you in, and be conscious of those moments where you feel like you're kind of locked out, where you're not able to get purchased. It feels like quicksand. You've been reading and rereading the same paragraph again and again and not making progress. What is it that's working and not working? I used to take pieces apart like they were a watch or a magic trick to try and figure out the pieces I liked. I'd literally just look at like where is it that fiction writers sometimes do this where they'll, they'll like retype Hemingway. I didn't do that. But, um, but I do think it helps to, to think about that. And then the other, which is kind of a, a connected to that, is um, I had this conversation with uh, this group of writers this afternoon where I was saying that the um, listen to your own attention span as a writer. So. If there's a section in your piece or your book or your essay, uh, maybe essay is a little different if you're doing it for school, but say you're, if you're doing journalism, certainly, if there's a section that you think, and now the boring section, I need to get this boring section out of the way, see if you can cut that section. Like if it bores you to think about it and if it bores you to write it, I guarantee you it is gonna bore your reader to tears. And it's a, it's a weird thing to tell you. I've been doing this now for 20 years, and it took me a long time to kind of listen to my own um, level of interest and realize, you know, if that section is super boring, is there some way to condense it down to a few sentences or to sort of take it apart and sprinkle that stuff elsewhere rather than have this dense undertaking that is going to be unpleasant for me to do? And I guarantee you, the reader will take no pleasure in reading something that you didn't find at least a little bit of pleasure in writing. On that note, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you all so much for coming out. Thank you all for coming. That was Patrick Grannon Keith at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall as part of Portland Arts and Lectures on February 22nd, 2023. This has been Literary Arts The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and to the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.